60 seconds. Lights on. Down two and a half. Forward. Forward. Pretty feet down two and a half. Picking up some dust. Pretty feet two and a half down. Straight shadow. Four forward. Four forward. Drift into the right a little. Ready? Down a half. 30 seconds. Forward. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. The Jodcast. The Jodcast has landed with Sally Cooper, Indy Leclerc, Ian McDonald, Mark Perber, Christina Smith, and Charlie Walker. The Jodcast, April 2015, Extra Edition. Hello, and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Indy, and joining me in the studio this time are Sally. Hello. And Christina. Hello. So it's quite an interesting situation because Sally's doing her first ever presenting uh, after three years of basically refusing to do any. And uh, and Christina, sadly enough, is, is doing what's going to probably be her last ever presenting uh, show before she moves on to greener pastures and more exciting podcasts. No, the last bit isn't actually true. There isn't a more exciting podcast than the Jodcast. Yes, it is. It is my last one. Sad times. <laughs> so what are your what are some fun memories of of your jodcasting time? You used to be the uh, the executive producer before I, I took over as well. So yeah, I was I was one of the big bad bosses. <laughs> oh gosh, I quite enjoyed doing some of the conference um, episodes. They were hectic but fun. Yeah, um, Nam twenty twelve, I think it was when we did a podcast a day. Wow. It was really exciting. That's oh yeah, that was the Nam that was in Manchester, wasn't it? Yeah, so. yeah, it was, and that was kind of. A bit crazy running around trying to interview people and edit and put it all together on the same day. Extreme podcasting. Extreme podcasting, exactly. <laughs> so I think that was probably one of my favourite ones, actually. Brilliant. And Sally, you finally agreed to, to go behind the mic after uh, a long period of editing and producing. Really I well. I did, but, yeah. yep. Uh, I've just been behind the scenes uh, normally, but now I'm I'm here to do my first show. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> So part of the reason um, Sally is presenting is because we've got a slightly special episode for you guys today. Recently, the BBC program Stargazing Live was held at Jodrell Bank, and one of the special, well, very special guests on the program, talking to Brian Cox and Dara O'Brien, was the great Buzz Aldrin, uh, Dr. Buzz Aldrin, in fact, and somehow we managed to snag uh, a short interview with him, so that's going to be featured later in the show. We've also managed to talk on the same day to Dr. Matt Taylor, who's the lead project scientist for the Rosetta mission, which we've talked at length about uh, in the podcast. And, of course, uh, it wouldn't be an extra episode without your astronomical questions being answered by Dr. Ian MacDonald. But first, before all of that, here's this month's Jodbite, as Mark interviews Jamie Sloan, the education manager of the Discovery Centre at Jodrell Bank. For this month's job, I've come over to the education side of Jodrell Bank at Jodrell Bank Discovery Centre, and I'm with the education manager, Jamie Sloan. Welcome to the Jobcast. Hi, Mark. Thanks very much. Good to be here. I thought we'd have you because you have a little bit of a Stargazing Live connection, and we're doing that for this episode, but we'll come on to that later. <laughs> um, so for anyone that doesn't know... Can you tell us a bit about the Jodrell Bank Discovery Centre and what your role is here? Sure. So the uh, Discovery Centre is uh, where the public can come to learn about uh, what the astronomers are doing here at Jodrell Bank. So we have uh, 100,000 visitors uh, coming every year, uh, more than. Uh, and we also run a very, very successful school programme, which is what I'm primarily involved in. We have about 16,000 school children in every year. Wow. Uh, yeah, and they are from age four five all the way up to age 18 and uh, we're fully booked nearly every day and it's very very exciting and you've been working here now is it for two years two and a half two and a half, two and a half years yeah and uh, through that we've been growing and growing and growing and we've just got ourselves a brand new building the star pavilion which means we'll be able to have even more children in 
it's been quite a sort of long tradition, hasn't it, Jodrell, to have a visitor centre and to take school groups particularly. It's been going on for uh, quite a long time. Uh, yeah, as far as I'm aware, there's been a visitor centre here in some form or another since the 70s. And it's uh, it's changed a lot over the years, had many different iterations. Uh, and the centre in its current form has existed uh, since 2011. So your background's in both physics and education. That's right. So I've got uh, my uh, master's degree from Durham University and then I came to Manchester to do my PGC, my uh, teacher training course. Um, and then I uh, moved here in 2012. And you design as well as delivering the sort of workshops and classes for the school group. So out of the things that you do, what's your favourite thing? What do you think the kids most get sort of inspired by? Oh, well, uh, our mission here is to inspire the scientists and engineers of the future. That's our goal. And my favourite thing, I don't know, because I love teaching the the older students. I love getting into, you know, the A-level, the nitty-gritty about the radio telescope and and, and getting them thinking about it in different ways. But I, I love teaching the little kids as well. When we get, you know, uh, the little kids and they're so, they just get so into it and they get so excited and they, they shout and they scream and they uh, they absolutely love what we do here. <laughs> so I love it all. And I love as well um, the public shows that we do. So in school holidays, we flip to, to public show mode and we do science shows and we do hands-on activities and we get a whole different audience in. Uh, and that's really fun as well because I get to be a bit more of a showman and <laughs> <laughs> deliver my shows. <laughs> So that's every school holidays, people can come and see those extra sort of Every things. school holidays, except for Christmas, we close over Christmas, but every school holidays, every half term, every uh, Easter, summer, yeah. And you've also been involved in some pretty sizable public events here. So there's been, um, in the last few years, big concerts for several thousand people. Yeah, we do the uh, Live from Jodrell Bank uh, music festivals, which are always great fun when we do those. We've had some fantastic bands in. We've had Sigal Ross, we've had Elbow. They're always great fun. We have a big science fair when we do them, and um, we have people, uh, you know, researchers, postdocs from all across the University of Manchester and beyond. Uh, and, yeah, the, the visitors just really enjoy getting involved with that, having a go at all the different uh, activities. We've also did the, um, uh, the film showings as well uh, as part of uh, the British Film Institute Festival. Uh, we had Alien and we had um, 2001. That was great as well. Yeah. The science arena is always great when it comes. You get things like little moon rocks turning up for people to look at. Mm-hmm. And um, Well, my favourite was sort of getting the solar telescope out a couple of years ago to show people because it was sunny, just showing them sunspots and things like that. Yeah. And graphene comes along yeah. and uh, the um, coniferous plants. <laughs> <laughs> So we've had Stargazing Live again recently, and I said I'd mention this at the beginning. I know this year you weren't quite so involved, but last year you had quite a starring I, I had role a little, at one point on the Back to Earth program. I had a little cameo appearance, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. Um, special uh, So uh, myself and uh, my colleague Christian, we were asked by Tim O'Brien. He said, uh, do you want to wear a spacesuit on live television? And we said, oh, yes, that would be absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I'd love to uh, wear a spacesuit. Uh, although it wasn't uh, it wasn't a spacesuit, as you would normally imagine. It turned out to be a compression suit. So what the astronauts wear, uh, or, or something that is being designed for the astronauts to wear when they are inside the space station to stop spine elongation. Um, so I think astronauts are 400 times more likely Likely to suffer a slipped disc when they return back to Earth wow. because uh, their spine has not been holding their weight whilst they've been up there, so it stretches. So anyway, uh, so this is a compression suit, which was essentially like a tight lycra <laughs> skin tight bodysuit. And then they made you walk on TV. Yeah, that's right. Uh, standing next to um, Dara and, and Brian and all the rest of them. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was a bit. Uh, Interesting. It was an interesting experience, and without uh, without a mic as well, we were just uh, stood there, silent. Yeah, silent, like models. (laughs) Not very much like models. Does it really make you stand up straight? It does. Well, well, your posture. Well, no. I mean, we had it on for a few hours. Oh right. um, Because we had to wear it for rehearsal, and then just we just kept them on. And actually, over that time, you just. Kind of start to curl up in a little bit. Oh, really? So it does compress you quite. It compresses you. Yeah, because we had we had the compression suit 
plus gravity. So um, obviously the astronauts, it wouldn't wouldn't be quite as bad. It's meant to it's meant to simulate gravity, so it's meant to be the same on Earth. But for us, right. it was a little bit worse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Well, just to finish off, um, can you tell us over sort of over the next few months what kind of events are coming up? At the Discovery Center. Okay, yeah, we've got loads of stuff coming up. Uh, we've got uh, more Lovell lectures, which is when we get uh, professional astronomers in to come and give a talk. Uh, we've got a family planetarium day coming up. And very exciting, in the May half term, we are doing the Amazed by Science Festival again, which is Cheshire's Science Festival. We've got all sorts of exciting things happening over that week. We've got science shows, we've got a science fair happening, we've got hands-on activities. Plus, we're going to be doing all sorts of things in uh, the garden as well and the gardens is something I've not actually mentioned our uh, 35 acres of gardens started by Sir Bernard Lovell and we've got our new uh, apiary so yes we're going to be doing stuff with the bees as well all very very exciting brilliant thank you very much for being interviewed we'll be keeping you busy thanks for that Mark here's Mark, Charlie and Sally interviewing Dr Matt Taylor about the Rosetta mission we apologise in advance for the abrupt cutoff of the Dr Matt Taylor interview this was because of the small window of time we had to interview Buzz Aldrin, so we were rushed off. Well, as we're waiting for Stargazing Live to begin, I've managed to catch up with Dr. Matt Taylor, who's here and is going to be on the programme tonight. So a warm welcome to the Jogcast. Hello, it's nice to be here. Now, we were all very closely following the landing of Philae from the Rosetta mission onto the comet Churyumov. Gerasimenko. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> 67 p that'll work. That'll be fine. Makes it easier. So that must have been quite a nerve-wracking moment for you. We all know how dramatically it sort of bounced and everything, but it got down and it, and it, and it took data. So could you tell us a bit about what that was like trying to follow that and also what scientific results have come out so far? Well, the mission itself uh, lends itself to drama. I've only been on the mission for nearly two years now, so I've come in at the noisy period. Um, we were very far away from the sun, so we had to go into hibernation a couple of years ago. We came back out of hibernation in January last year, so everything's happened in the last year. So we came out of hibernation, which was probably for me one of the most hectic periods, because we had no idea what the spacecraft was doing. We didn't know if it was still there, so it was really a, a binary switch from zero to one in terms of that. So that was a real relief. Um, then we had the rendezvous, which we'd never done before either. Uh, that was in August, so we got within 100 kilometres of the comet. And then the rest of the of the year was spent gradually edging towards the comet, getting a feel for what it's like to fly around the comet, because it's never been done before. In fact, I think about a year ago now, we still didn't know the shape of the comet. We didn't know that it looked like this funny black swan or duck. Uh, so that's something also to consider that it's taken us... We've had a lot of we had preconceptions and now we've learned a lot more from from the uh, from the data so far. Could you manoeuvre around it relatively freely? In principle, yes, you can. I think one of the, one of the main things that we were doing last year, I think again this time last year, we were discussing how close we could get to it in terms of a, a bound orbit, actually classically bound by the gravity. It was thought maybe between thirty and twenty kilometres in a, in a bounded kind of orbit but eventually we actually got down to 10 so that was you you modified your preconceptions of how you fly but the the problem you have with Rosetta is that it's a a big spacecraft it's about well, it's got 64 square meters of solar panel so you know as you go out on a windy day open your anorak up as you did when you were a kid it's difficult to run into the wind especially on the beach you get loads of sand as well which is a bit like the commentary environment so we try and put the spacecraft in a situation where it's not projecting that much of a cross-section to the comet. So that's why we stay in these Terminator orbits, so the solar panels, or the plane of them, is in the same plane as the Terminator. So we spent a lot of time in that situation in around October last year. Then we kicked out. Once we'd mapped the comet, again, this was the thing. A year ago, we didn't really know what the comet looked like. Then we had to rendezvous with it and put a lander on it. Mars missions, moon missions, they did a lot of orbits with different missions first, and then they put the lander down. We're doing those two phases in one, or we have done that now, I can say, uh, in, in two, two phases of uh, a mission evolution in, in one mission, as it were. It was mainly operational last year in terms of mapping the comet, but we we're also doing science on the side. We learned a lot about the comet in terms of drawing a baseline, as it were, to, to the, the rest of the mission. Because the key thing is that the mission's rendezvous and it's going to stay alongside the comet for over a year, at least till the end of this year, and hopefully will extend. Key thing being we go through perihelion in August this year, where it's most active, that will give us this range of uh, an in, re relatively inactive comet that we were at last year to the maximum activity this year and see how that changes 
we'll see a change in the volume of the comet. So we'll see as, the, as the sun heats it up, it's going to be ejecting yeah, yeah. some material. I mean, it's starting to do that now. We'll see, if you look at the images we're, we're sending out from the navigation camera and Osiris camera, you're seeing this material come out, the dust and the gas that's flowing off the surface or out the subsurface, and we'll see changes in that. And that's the key thing. So we have a baseline formed from these first observations that it's very dark. It's got an albedo of something like 4 or 5%, so it's dark in Nashville. That this is predominantly an organic material. That's what we believe it is. It's very dark organic material. There's little evidence of surface ice, Although now, perhaps this is driven by the, the activity, we're starting to see ice peeking through. So we're starting to see the inference that we're actually seeing surface ice, or maybe it's subsurface ice that's coming through. I guess this is the whole thing. If you're processing material and chucking it off, something's got to happen. You know, how are you re-delivering, or where's this coming from? So where's this sublimating uh, material, this gas coming from? So this is what we're seeing. We'll see that evolution. So we're starting to see the, the, the ice as well. We're starting to see the interaction of this gas coming off of the comet with the solar wind. That's starting to happen now as well. And possibly we might be seeing evidence maybe of a shock as well forming. So all this kind of stuff is starting to happen now, and then we'll see the evolution of how that changes. With Philae, we had about 60 hours of uh, measurements. That was how it was planned to be. It was going to have a separation, descent and landing, a first science sequence, and then a long-term science. Effectively, it's in between those two and three there. It was designed to go into hibernation. It wasn't designed to go into hibernation in a ditch, uh, which it's in. <laughs> uh, um, so that's, that's the thing. So it, we had to modify the first science sequence to try and change a few things because of the the location of it. We were actually a bit concerned to deploy the drill at first because it was worried that it might push it in a certain direction, topple it over. But we did all this stuff. Ultimately, it looks like the drill didn't actually touch the surface or get any, any stuff into the, the ovens which we needed. And that's what we're hoping to do in the, the long-term science. So it's designed to go in hibernation. It's just a longer hibernation than we thought. Ultimately, if it had stayed where we'd aimed for, we'd be looking to the end of the mission now. So it was designed to go roughly till March, April time. And where we are now, we'd be in the midway of that long-term science and possibly looking at the end of the mission. This is driven by the temperature. So it has to cycle temperature. It's getting warmer on the surface. It has to cool down as well. So it has to have a, a good day and night cycle. Where we are, it's just not bright or warm enough yet. That will happen. We're starting to listen to it or listen for it now because uh, the land is by itself. We can't really do anything to it. We're waiting for it to wake up, come out of hibernation. By May, I think, is when a number of us think that's when it'll happen. Because so you do think it's going to catch the sunlight again I'm and recharge. I'm an eternal optimist. I have to be to work on this mission. <laughs> uh, it's got the the, the 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 comet's got season, so the the orbit raises above the ecliptic in in, in the next few months. So the head part of the duck, uh, where the lander we think it is, is starting to become more illuminated. Uh, so that will bring the temperature up and give you that better profile in terms of charging. So that's May seems to be a good point. Uh, to maybe put a couple of quid each way on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the whole purpose of the mission is looking at the comet as a almost like a fossil of our solar system. So, as you mentioned, ice, what other kind of things could we expect to, to find? Well, it's these building blocks. I think this is the thing. This keeps on being brought up, and as you're alluding to, it's this, I'll use the, the classic treasure chest from the primordial mix that we had at the beginning of the solar system. Some of the preliminary uh, observations we've seen in terms of uh, looking at deuterium to hydrogen ratios in the water that's coming off gives you an indication of where the comet formed. There are other things that we'll be measuring, noble gases, etc., and other ratios of different volatiles that give us more of a fix on where the comet formed with respect to the protoplanetary disk, so whether it was close or far away from the sun. These deuterium to hydrogen ratios show that it was very far away, that it's a classic uh, Kuiper Belt object, I've been reliably informed. So it's been outside on the edge for quite a long time, uh, maybe from the beginning. Maybe some of the stuff on it predates the solar system. But the key thing there, knowing that it's a very old object, then puts into context everything else. So all the other observations we'll make when we go through perihelion becomes more active. That's when you'll say, well, because of this, this and this, it gives you, again, it gives you the better fix on, on where this thing came from. And therefore, what the ultimate mix of material was at the beginning of the solar system. How do they know what the other Cooper Belt objects are like? Well, the measurement of you know, this deuterium to hydrogen is actually made by the orbiter. But yeah, this is a good question. Now, our preconceptions of these uh, Jupiter-class comets, so we, we visited mainly Oort cloud comets before. This one is the first time I think we've actually visited 
locally, we've had observations from Herschel of other Jupiter-class comets, which actually had a deuterium to hydrogen ratio that was more similar to the Earth. So there was this big question about our, our comets, uh, a viable, efficient delivery mechanism of water to the Earth. This is the other thing, looking at the dry Earth scenario, the wet Earth scenario in the early solar system when we had the heavy bombardment. Prior to that, the Earth, one of the theories is that all the water boiled off. Uh, something had to deliver that back. So these comets came yeah. from Cooper Belt? So this was one theory before Rosetta, actually. It was thought that, okay, asteroids have been shown to be a delivery mechanism, but also we were showing with a couple of these comets observed with Herschel that there was a deuterium to hydrogen ratio very similar to that of Earth. So again, it's, look, these are these primordial small bodies that seem to have delivered stuff to the Earth. With the comets, you also link the fact that they've got organics on them as well. So maybe you can say, draw the line, they've delivered water, we found... Uh, pre-sort of DNA protein-like molecules in other comets. So you make that link as well, that you're providing or delivering, as well as water, the other uh, vital ingredients to start life off. Not life itself, but the building blocks. So that's that complication, as you have with science, that now we've shown this one is a really, really high D2H ratio. So we actually have this span of values of D2H with the Kuiper Belt objects, which just says we need to rethink how... How these water. bodies evolve and, and where the water comes from. It, yeah. It's not to say that Jupiter-class comets didn't deliver anything to the Earth. It's more their evolution through time o over the solar system uh, lifetime may have been more complicated than we first thought, or at least maybe these ones that Herschel looked at. But it's clear that asteroids are still in that, that part where they would have delivered the water as well. But there's, it's not to rule out. Comets but comets well. aren't all the same. So no, this is yeah. this is true. We're seeing that they're they're not the same. There's quite a few of them as well. We've only visited or observed a few of them. I mean, for me, that's something else that we'll get with Rosetta. We have this close-up view for over a year. Gives you that context for all of the other measurements that have been made before. Because we're doing ground-based, although it's a bit ropey at the moment because it's in solar conjunction um, and you can't see it very well. But after some of this year, we'll come back into full view. So you're making remote sensing as well as being in situ there. So those you can make that cross-comparison to and maybe every every other, but most of the other commentary observations we make from the ground or near Earth. So I think that's nice as well, that you've got that very detailed look at one comet. You have the contextual ground-based observations to fit in with your conceptions and, and, and theories of all the other comets. So that, that's an ad, added extra. Could there be a sort of life cycle on the comets where they change over time? Or will all of these things have come from different places? Well, this is it. I mean, uh, even even this comet itself, it's thought that I think in 1959 it was originally a bit further out. Its perihelion is about 1.2 AEU, but it was out at 2.7, I think, before that. And I think that Jupiter perturbed it. But then once you start backtracking further than that, it gets a bit scratchy as to what was happening with it. I think they say normally they've got about 50 or 100 orbits of them, and then they start to run out. This one's been around a few times. It's not a very active comet. When you compare it to Ison and, and some of these other Oort cloud comets, these are the sun grazers, they come in, and they really are, you know, bright and, and, and breezy, coming very quickly, lots of stuff coming off of them. But Kuiper Belt are, are less, or certainly these shorter period comets are, are less active, so they might be in there a bit more. But in terms of processing, this is a nice comet to choose because it had this perihelion kick, so it only came in closer or recently. So maybe it's not as processed. Looking beyond this particular mission, what would be next? That's a good question. That then taps into how ESA does its science. So we make calls to the community to get them to propose missions. And that's where one would see something like this come in. Unfortunately, I would say... At the moment, there's no scope for something as big as Rosetta. And in fact, I would also say that if Rosetta was proposed now, ESA probably wouldn't accept it because it's too risky. But there was a point in time, way, you know, 20-odd years ago, where people were a bit more risk. Uh, but they wanted to do this, yeah. Now, yeah, there is a, an aversion to risk for very good reasons. Uh, we're trying to spread things out a little bit more. But that would be where we're looking. There are some talks of going to the asteroid belt. Now, there's an easy way of describing these small bodies and saying you've got the Kuiper belt, the Oort cloud, and the asteroids. But it looks like there's a mix of the whole Kuiper belt thing. The fact that they look like they've had different, different evolutionary strains. And very recently, they've shown asteroids that have cometary-like behavior as well. So it looks like there's a... It's, I don't know. They weren't different animals in a zoo. Maybe they're the same strain of animals. You know, you've got big cats and, I don't know, domestic cats. Something, I don't know. Something like that. It, it's... it's <laughs> As usual, not as easy to subdivide all these things. Thanks for that, Mark, Sally and Charlie. 
So I'm very proud to introduce the Moon Man, Dr. Buzz Aldrin. Firstly, I'm just going to make a small apology for sound quality issues. As you can imagine, Buzz is quite difficult to track down, so this was quite a noisy environment, but I hope you enjoy it. We're very fortunate to have on the Jogcast today one of the original Moon Men, Dr. Buzz Aldrin. Thank you very much for being on the Jogcast. Well, I came just to talk to the three of you <laughs> and a few other people around here. As um, our listeners uh, love to hear about research related to astronomy, if it's not casting your mind back too far, we thought we'd ask you about the research that led to your doctoral thesis to do with manned orbital rendezvous, and maybe also the tools that you, you helped to, de- to design related to spacewalks. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, there wasn't much to research, really. There, there were just a few uh, different uh, papers that had been written by different people and, uh, and different procedures. And, and there were equations that could uh, uh, use the motion between two objects and you, you could solve those. Uh, but, but nothing really fit into much of a logical pattern. So I, uh, I, I just decided that uh, y- you need to want to make uh, a transfer between one orbit and the other. So, for example, two planets? And you can do uh, the classic 180-degree Holman transfer, or you can do something shorter than that, and uh, you can adjust where in orbit you do this and, and what the... Uh, characteristics might be of, uh, of doing a transfer and then select what you'd really like to do and then set the situation so that you're approaching the other until you get to the right place and then you initiate uh, and, and this seems so logical to me because that's what we did in, in fighter pilot training or in just plain airplane training. You you take off from a runway, then you turn on what we call crosswind. You fly for a short ways, then you turn, and you line up with the runway downwind, because you're going with the wind. Mm-hmm. Then you turn on base leg. And those are all very automatic things, but not the turn to final. That's where you really have to get the guidance looking at what you see and what you think you ought to see, and then you make a correction. That's what you're really doing. You're lining things up. And, and so if, if that is how you can go about rendezvous, you can, you can do that by uh, putting checkpoints between when you start and when you hope to finish that will allow you to make corrections when it's not quite doing what you want to do. Uh, or you can be making corrections all along. And, and in my thesis, I chose to make corrections whenever uh, it was needed. When, when as I was uh, programming the site to move, what I ought to see, the flashing light of the target doing it, and if it approached the edge, then I would make a, a correction. But it's probably better to do scheduled ones. That's what we ended up doing. And the, uh, the competing systems just didn't have the logic, the understanding that the crew, most of, most, all of them were pilots, some test pilots. So I wanted to ask, in your thesis, you, in your dedication, in your thesis, you actually said something along the lines of, if only I, was, I could be one of them. Um, did you ever think that you would become an astronaut at that point did you know well I really never gave up when when I did apply the first time in 1962 uh, my my really good friend it was a year behind uh, at West Point uh, but he was together with me in a squadron in Germany and then when he went back he went to uh, the test pilot school well, he first went to Michigan, got master's degree in test pilot school, and 1962 comes along, we talk, and he says, I'm qualified, I'm going to apply. And I said, well, I will too. <laughs> but they didn't pick me, but the next year, 
uh, I was persistent, <laughs> and I tried again. So, obviously, you must have been thinking about this for a long time before. What got you interested in becoming an astronaut? Well, it, it was doing things that were in the future, that were more than just flying and, and testing what kind of airfoil or the little change. I was interested in going higher, and, and, and if space is a, a place... That, that one step up. Then you might want to uh, do that. And, and of course, uh, when, when I felt like I might not uh, be selected in 60, I was already at MIT. Uh, and I was sort of resigned to, well, I'll just keep doing. But I was, I had already chosen to do rendezvous in space. But I, I didn't think that that would get me there at all but then it, then it became persistent when it looked like it was really good and you and you ended up on the first mission to the moon which really is something that seems beyond a dream really to go to the moon well it, it wasn't automatic at all <laughs> uh, I thought because I I knew more than these other guys did about space they knew how to test airplanes you know, so what they land on aircraft carriers but I knew something, and I helped to train some of their... So I felt, obviously, I'm going to get a chance to, to fly in that two-man Gemini. Uh-uh. It didn't look like when the assignments come out that I was going to fly, but a uh, tragedy uh, killed a backdoor na- neighbor of mine, and they needed a crew to move to take the... to move to that crew as backup. And then that put me in a position to fly on the last one. And then they needed to do better in spacewalking. Right. Well, so you did spacewalking. And somebody suggested, why don't you use underwater? I thought, that's a good idea, you know. So you that actually, should work. You had experience of doing spacewalks, and, and, and you helped to design tools to, to well, use on those. No, I, I just uh, made myself available to, to do that training for the last mission. And it began to, to work quite well, but not well enough. They thought, I thought it was but but they didn't want to take a risk and, and use the more complicated uh, backpack maneuvering unit that you could separate right. and move around like George Clooney yeah. <laughs> really horsing around. That doesn't look very sensible when he does that, does it really? No, it didn't. Either. I'm glad it didn't to you either. <laughs> I, I, I questioned whether he really would have been allowed to be an astronaut in real life. <laughs> When you think back to that experience on the moon, does it feel real or surreal to have done that? Is it very vivid? Well, if we were the only ones that did it, then it would seem rather remarkable once once occurrence. But when when other people have done it, we see what can be done um, in in those type missions, and then we've I've done spacewalking and we've had the Skylab uh, and, and people inside the Skylab were running around inside. That was that was the funniest thing I thought I'd ever seen. Real clever. They got the inside of this cylinder and and on the inside, of course they were floating, but once they started moving, the centrifugal force were was keeping them out and, and they could run around like a mouse in a yeah yeah because yeah, I, I had mice yeah. I built a mouse cage that had one of those things like in 2001 a space odyssey where they kind of just walk yes. in any direction but doing it with mice is much better yeah. <laughs> well thank, thank you very much you're very welcome thank you okay where did you get to Mars so thanks a lot for that, uh, Mark, Sally, and Charlie. That's uh, one of the, the great Jodcast interviews. And now we're moving on to the odds and ends, which you might notice uh, have a theme this month. So, Christina, what have you got for us? Okay, so my odd slash end is all about lava tubes on the moon. So lava tubes are kind of tunnels in rock that form 
as lava flows through rock and um, creates kind of a, a hard crust around it. And then when an eruption kind of stops happening, the lava drains away, leaving this this tunnel situation. You can find them on Earth in places like Hawaii. I've actually stood in one myself. It's really cool. Mm. <laughs> um, they have quite an arched appearance. It's not like square or anything like that, as you would expect. It is quite arched. And there have been a lot of discussions over whether or not lava tubes exist on the moon, um, or at least the scale of the lava tubes on the moon. There is evidence for them in the case of sinuous rills, and I apologise if I have mispronounced that. Um, and these are long depressions that you can see on the moon, which could be trenches or valleys or this kind of thing. Sinuous rills range up to about 10 kilometres wide. There's been some work done on looking at possible widths of these lava tubes on the moon. So there was a study in 1969 uh, modelling lava tubes, and they used kind of a flat beam roof, which gave a maximum size of about 400 metres. But at the Lunar and Planetary Sciences Conference, um, a researcher from Purdue University in Indiana presented some modelling work done on um, tubes that are much larger than that, of one kilometre to five kilometre size. They used an arched roof system, and it appears that they can be stable up to 5,000 metres, um, which is really interesting for lunar bases or potential future lunar bases, because on the surface you have problems with radiation, micrometeorites, um, extreme temperature changes, and that kind of thing would be reduced if you were underground in this natural but huge kind of cave system. And it might also aid in any kind of pressurising that you had to do under there. I found that quite interesting. On Earth, you don't get them that large. Just because of the, the Earth's atmosphere, um, you just wouldn't, wouldn't be able to get them that large. They'd collapse. But these models have shown that they would be stable up to 5,000 metres, which is really exciting. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. So I assume these things formed uh, when the Moon still had sort of volcanic activity and molten lava and that sort of thing. Yeah, you'd need eruptions to happen to form yeah. these. So it would be back when the Moon was active, which obviously it has long since passed. <laughs> sure. Um, and so you're saying that on Earth they're much smaller because of the atmosphere, or I guess possibly also because of the gravity, so lava just collapses in on itself easier on Earth, I guess. Well, the lava tubes do. Yeah. Brilliant, yeah. So I guess, yeah, you could probably just pump a lot of air into a big hollow cavern and then uh, and then create a moon colony. So it'd be a bit more like a ant colony, but for humans <laughs> on the moon. Yeah, human ant moon colony. <laughs> Assuming there's nothing that's already in the tunnels. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, okay, Sally, what do you have for us? So my odd and end is actually the question, how was the moon formed? So this may seem like quite a simple question, but one that we still aren't entirely sure of the answer. The leading explanation at the moment is for the origin is known as the giant impact hypothesis. And this is the idea that the moon resulted from the collision of two protoplanets. So a new study from the University of Bordeaux supports the theory that the moon was formed um, from debris left over from a collision with something that maybe was the size of Mars with Earth. And we do know that the Earth was formed around 4.5 billion years ago and possibly the moon was formed slightly after that. The reason why this theory isn't fully supported, there are a few questions around it. And one of them is that if the moon was formed from two different bodies. The stuff that makes up the moon should be different to that makes up the Earth. But actually, rock brought back from the moon, from our very own Dr. Buzz Aldrin, uh, <laughs> shows that the moon is actually made up of very similar isotopes to that of Earth. So what this study does is simulated collisions between Earth-sized rocks um, to maybe some smaller planetesimals, and then they let the simulation run for 100 to 200 million years, and the simulation produces um, sort of on average um, four rocky planets each time, which are comparable to the size of Earth. And what's good about this um, study is that they show that 20 to 40 percent of the composition of the main planet that was produced is actually similar to the last rock that it collided with. And therefore, the Earth-Moon similarities could be just a natural consequence of a sort of giant impact. Is it? kind of like that all the way through because I know I know that collisions are quite destructive in some way and and so you get a lot of changes going on but is it kind of just around the surface where the composition would be the same or would it be very very similar all the way through? 
No, well, they believe that the moon was made up from just the debris left over from a collision. So the debris, I suppose, should contain material from both sides, rocks, kind of. So, yeah, all the way through the moon. Yeah, so there's much less structure within the moon, though, compared to, like, a larger planet like Earth or Mars or whatever, like, in terms of the core and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, having a core, just yeah. pretty much a dead rock. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I guess you've probably figured out the theme by now, but just to rub it in a little bit, I'm going to talk about the lunar eclipse that happened on the 4th of April, uh, which was visible to people in the western United States and also across the Pacific uh, up to New Zealand and Australia. The eclipse was a total eclipse, and so it came literally a couple of weeks after the, uh, the the total solar eclipse that happened in Europe. And so what happens with the lunar eclipse is sort of the other way around. So instead of the sun being blocked by the moon, as is the case in a solar eclipse, in, in, a, in the case of a lunar eclipse, the moon is in fact blocked off from the sun by the Earth's shadow itself, the uh, the umbra. So the Earth is stuck in between the sun and the moon. And this was a total eclipse. Uh, however, a lot of observers reported seeing quite a bright limb of, of sort of sunlight uh, towards the northern side of the moon. And as it turns out, there's been a little bit of debate on uh, on astronomy portals and astronomy forums and, and amongst eclipse watchers whether the eclipse was in fact total or not. Um, according to all, all sort of astronomical prediction, predictions, the eclipse was total. It lasted 12 minutes in total when the, the entirety of the Earth's shadow covered the moon. However, because the top edge of the Earth's shadow was very close to the edge of the moon, there's some debate as to how you actually define the shape of the Earth, because obviously the Earth has an atmosphere, the Earth itself is in a perfect sphere, so you won't get a perfect circular shadow. It's very slightly uh, squashed. But also the turbulence in the atmosphere literally means that you can cast a slightly different sized shadow depending on, on all sorts of conditions. It actually gives it sort of a, a, the edge of the shadow uh, a slightly ragged and, and indistinct edge. And so it seems like one of the main conclusions that, that people have come to is that whether it was a total eclipse or not just depends on your brightness threshold for whether an eclipse should be total or not, because obviously the moon doesn't disappear entirely from the sky. Um, it just gets a lot... Well, it turns a sort of reddish colour, um, because obviously some light still gets through the atmosphere of the Earth and illuminates the moon. So... Ultimately, you'd have to define some sort of brightness threshold to say whether it was a total or a partial eclipse. But at the end of the day, it's it's as close to a total eclipse as you can get without being a total eclipse. So I think the point is a little bit moot. Slightly random, but I just personally quite enjoy lunar eclipses. I quite like seeing the moon go really red. It's a very eerie thing kind of when you're just looking at it, especially I saw my first one when I was about seven. And mm. It was like, whoa, the moon's red. Yeah, it makes for be really um, beautiful pictures of the of the moon. I think we'll we'll maybe post some links to a couple of pictures. Yeah, it's a stunning sight. It's it's almost easier to appreciate than a solar eclipse because I mean you you know you can just look at the moon and just see it change color and 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 it looks it looks really impressive. Whereas with solar eclipse, unless it's going to be like a total eclipse, even a partial eclipse can be slightly underwhelming if you don't have the right equipment to observe it. The lunar eclipses, you can just look at them with your naked eye, whereas you can't do that with the sun. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So those were our moon-themed uh, odds and ends. And now on a completely uh, unrelated note to the moon, here's someone who really likes cheese with this month's Ask an Astronomer. It's Ian MacDonald. Is the supermassive black hole Sagittarius A star orbiting the galactic centre of mass, or does it sit spot-on at that centre? Well, everything in the galaxy orbits the galactic centre of mass, whether it's a single atom or a supermassive black hole. This centre of the mass is called the barycentre, but it's rather less defined than you might think. Let's take a more familiar example. The solar system is fairly easy. We've got a sizable star sitting in the middle, and a few fairly piddly planets orbiting it. The solar system barycentre can be fixed within a few kilometres by only taking into account the few most massive objects. So we can accurately plot how the Sun does its merry little dance around it. But for our galaxy, there's a major difference. The black hole in the centre makes up only a tiny fraction of the galaxy. A million solar masses isn't trifling, but you could easily lose a million solar masses elsewhere in the galaxy, and no one would bat an eyelid. Gas bubbles are being ejected out of the galaxy every time a supernova goes off, and that material is constantly raining back down to the galactic plane. Entire dwarf galaxies are being cannibalised by the Milky Way as we speak, and their spaghettified remains continue to orbit the galaxy in faint streams. 
And as for dark matter, well, we've only got the most general idea of how that's distributed. So it's easy enough to work out where the supermassive black hole is and where it's moving. It's surprisingly hard to work out with that kind of accuracy where the middle of the galaxy is. We know it's somewhere very close to Sagittarius A star, perhaps within it. But for convenience, we just define the supermassive black hole as being directly at the galaxy centre. Next question is, how much less would my weight have been if I had weighed myself during the eclipse? And that comes from Michelle Dempsey. Now, Michelle hints an important point here. The sun and the moon affect our tides, but they don't just pull in the oceans, they pull in the rest of the world too, including us. Now, thankfully, the gravitational pull of the Earth is always much greater, so neither do we fly off into space every time the moon comes overhead, nor does the Earth disintegrate into a pile of molten goo. But just how much stronger is the Earth's gravity? Well, for this argument, I'm going to ignore the fact that the Earth is continuously accelerating in its orbit around the Earth-Moon barycenter, and just look at the pull of the moon on you. Let's say that you were standing in Manchester during the last eclipse. The pull of the moon's gravity would have been a little under four millionths of that of the Earth, but it's also directed mostly sideways instead of straight up, because the moon was close to the horizon. If we say that you have the average European body mass of about 70 kilos, then it would have resulted in those scales dropping by about 129 milligrams. Now that's not very much. The hair on your head gets heavier by about this much every day. So if you want to have a quick diet, this may not be the one for you. So let's look at what else you can do to lose some weight. Well, the first thing you can do is change your latitude. The central fuel force provided by the Earth's rotation gives some counterbalance against the pull of gravity. So the closer to the equator you are, the less you weigh. If you were standing in Singapore, for instance, you would weigh about 300 grams or 10.5 ounces less than you will in Manchester. The other thing that you can do is change your height. The further from the Earth's centre you go, the less the pull of gravity and the greater that centrifugal force. What we ideally want is a tall mountain near the equator. And in fact, the furthest point from the Earth's centre is Mount Chimborazo in the Ecuadorian Andes. An exact figure for how much less you'd weigh there is difficult to determine because you have to take into account the gravity of the Andes themselves. But it probably should be about 100 to 140 grams, or 4 to 6 ounces. Though to be fair, you'd probably burn off more than that in fat just by climbing it, and you'd probably put on more weight and blood volume through the altitude acclimatization you'd have to do. So it's possible to change your weight by about a pound, just by moving around the Earth's surface. And climbing in the Andes is likely to be better for your health than lunar-based dieting. And if you want to stay put during the next eclipse, you'd probably be better losing weight by getting a shorter haircut. Handy astronomical tips there. So the final question is, why don't we have 13 months instead of 12? Wouldn't it make more sense having 28 days in each month? And that's from John Brooks. It's not a new idea of having 13 months of 28 days, making 364 days in total. It's been around since about 1745, or even earlier, but it's never really caught on. The primary argument has been, well, we've always done it this way, and it would be too difficult to change to something else. The only really incontestable argument is that it then becomes rather difficult to do things on a quarterly basis. The interrelation of months and years is a long and complicated history, and it varies little from culture to culture. But in almost every calendar system older than the 1800s, there's a close relationship between the lunar cycle and the year. In fact, in virtually every European language, the words for month and moon come from the same root thought to be the Indo-European word mens. And archaeological research suggests the moon has been used for a timekeeping tool for at least 30,000 years. However, the rather inconvenient fact remains that the lunar month is 29.53059 days long, and this doesn't really fit conveniently into the 365 and a quarter day year. There's 12.3685 of them. And that's the first part to your answer. They're closer to 12 lunations every year rather than 13. Now, different calendar systems have come up with different solutions to the problem of the difference between the lunar and solar calendars. Some calendars solved the problem by stuffing in a 13th or intercalary month on occasion. This included the ancient Roman calendar of Numa, which has been in use since about 713 BC. And our modern calendar directly descends from this. Julius Caesar replaced the old Roman calendar with the Julian calendar, and its successor, the Gregorian calendar, is the one that we use today. Now this solved the problem by doing away with the occasional 13 months entirely, and spreading out the other 12 months to fit the rest. So why spread it out into 12 months, rather than cramming it into 13? Well, 12 months was more normal, as the 13th month was only used in 7 out of every 19 years. However, there's also a deeply rooted mythology in the number 12. 
probably partly due to its divisibility compared to 13. The Romans considered odd numbers unlucky, but there's a deeper link that stretches back into prehistory. Our 12 and 24-hour clocks have roots in the ancient Near East, and the number 12 was probably chosen here as a link to the number of months in the year. Great answer. Thanks for that, Ian. So if you want to send in your own questions, you can do so on the website at www.jodcast.net. Thanks for that, Ian. Uh, now on to the feedback. And we've had a great email from Ben Harding, who put astrology in the subject line. So normally those make us uh, a little bit annoyed, but this one was great. It says, really enjoyed your April Jodcast. I laughed out loud all the way around town. As a Pyrex, he was a test tube baby, I am usually sceptical. However, just as you predicted, something unexpected did happen to me. Can't remember what it was, but I do remember being slightly surprised at some point in the month. Well done. I also enjoyed the rest of the show. You are a highlight of my listening month. Well, thanks a lot for that great feedback on the uh, on the on the April astrology episode. It was a real pleasure to produce and and, and record that episode, and we had a lot of laughs along the way, and we hope our listeners did too. We do have something on Facebook. Uh, yes, so Sue Alley posted that she loves these podcasts. Uh, she quotes them and feels like Einstein, and just says thank you so much. I'm just really happy that you enjoy quoting us. Yeah, that's great, as long as you don't quote any of the April Fool's episodes, because then you might not sound like Einstein so much anymore. Well, the, the interviews were... The interviews were okay, <laughs> just just ignore the, the filler bits, the bits where we talk. <laughs> <laughs> and on Twitter, Libby Jones says, I really hope you call the next episode buzzing. So thanks for that, Libby. Libby, of course, was Christina's partner in crime uh, back in the day as co-executive producer. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter, twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. All I have to say is thanks to Dr. Matt Taylor, Dr. Buzz Aldrin, and Jamie Sloan for the interviews. The editors were Mark Perver and Indy Leclerc, and the producer was Indy Leclerc. Until next time, Jordan. Jordan. Roger, Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot.